then that means that we're we're looking for another crutch. So then that's when the wine monkey comes out and the wine monkey goes, right, hey, that bottle of Chardonnay in the fridge looks good. <laughs> Let's have that. And, and by meditating, and so I recommend people to meditate in the morning and in the evening, it means, and especially in the evening if they're only doing one, it means that when you've depleted that adaptation energy, when you've run out of those wise monkeys, you can top up again. Hey there, Tribe Sober Podcast fans. It's your buddy Adam from Podcasting Business School. That's the podcast where I teach people about podcast launch, growth, and monetization strategies. Check out episode 220 where I help you discover where you're at in the podcasting success timeline. You are listening to the Tribe Sober Podcast, and it's time to bring out your host, my pod pal, Janet Gurand. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 101. My name is Janet Goron. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last six years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created a tribe because we believe it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. We're all about encouraging each other and helping each other to stay on track. And each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavor of the awesomeness of our tribe. I think planning is really important. I I find the journaling really valuable, and I absolutely um have immersed myself less even now so but in all the quick lit stuff the reading the podcasts and obviously the neuroplasty side of it completely appealed to me you know I've been teaching lecturing that for years and I've never applied it to myself and my daily drinking so that's that's sort of like a you know revelation so if you want to join our warm and welcoming community just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe At Tribe Sober, we encourage people to quit drinking and then to go on and learn to thrive in their alcohol-free lives. We offer free coaching, hypnotherapy, and an online yoga course and various other therapies. It's important to experiment when you get sober to get back in touch with what you really like to do. It's all about building a life that you don't want to escape from. My guest this week is a meditation teacher from Australia. He offers a course called Six Steps for Not Quite Alcoholics. He's offering to help people to change their relationship with alcohol from a quite different angle to us. He's suggesting that they meditate daily for a few weeks and then see how they feel about their drinking. Rory shares his own struggles with alcohol and explains that once he got into meditation, he found that alcohol no longer fitted in with his healthy lifestyle. I began by asking Rory to introduce himself. So my name's Rory Kinsella. I'm a meditation teacher based in Sydney, Australia. I'm originally from the UK. And yeah, I use meditation as a way to help people achieve their drinking goal, whatever that might be, help them change their relationship with alcohol. 
Fantastic. Yeah, I do love your journey. I think it's um, it's an original one, isn't it? Going from heavy drinker to meditation teacher. <laughs> Fantastic. It's like going from one end of a spectrum to the other, isn't it? Mindlessness yeah. to mindfulness. Well, yeah, 100%. And the more that I've kind of read about you know, I don't know if you've read about Taoism at all. There's this idea of the Tao is the, the middle way. Um, this is the, a religion in, in China. And if you're not on the middle way, I'm sorry, I'm jumping into super deep stuff <laughs> straight away. It's hard. Carry on. <laughs> it, um, the aim in Taoism is to maintain this middle way. And if you go off the middle way, you go to the extremes. And if you go to one extreme, you, it, you know, you have to go to the other extreme. So if you're a full-on oh. drinker you become a full-on not drinker kind of thing you know thing. that's so interesting Rory because <laughs> we say in our kind of community that we always say well ex-drinkers are very interesting people well we would say that wouldn't we but also <laughs> we say um that we're all or nothing people so we drank all the wine and now we're putting our all into our recovery and that's that's why it's working so it's it's your theory again isn't it it's great yeah so let's let's delve into your drinking story shall we were you a teenage drinker sneaking off to the pub in the uk i was yes how did you guess <laughs> um, <laughs> i was actually yeah i was kind of a an early teen drinker so like a 30, 13 we would steal bottles of wine and um, do these mix-up bottles of a little bit of gin and a bit of whiskey and a bit of whatever we could find from the parents' drink drinks cabinet and put it into this disgusting cocktail of foulness. <laughs> that, that we, Imagine what, what that's doing to the teenage brain, the mind boggles. <laughs> I know, and it was, you know, and this is, we're talking about kids with with no tolerance of alcohol. So you can imagine the horrendous results of of that. So, you know, being physically sick from alcohol, I would have been 12 when I first did that. And then I guess a normal UK upbringing of social drinking. So sneaking into the pubs at 15, 16, um, and it being kind of normal, like being picked up from the pub at probably 17. And that was a normal thing. It was like kind of okay, um, allowed because it's so, <clears throat> so normal in England. And that being my normal, my normal routine of basically drinking whenever I could. We would drink, we would experiment with recreational drugs, but it was one of those situations where I, I went to a, a private school and I got good marks and it was kind of okay. No one really mm -hmm. delved into it if you got good marks. So even when I got caught drinking on the French trip, the French exchange trip when I was 14 and being a ringleader and having to go to the headmaster and promise I wouldn't do it again. And then doing it again at 16 on the Russian exchange trip and having to go to the headmaster and say, oh, I promise I won't do it again. And then doing it again at 17 and then being, look, this is your, <laughs> we, you had your final warning two times ago. Now stop it. Yeah. That, you know, that not being a problem not seeming like a problem because it was quite normal and it was it was fun and it was rebellious and it was like okay great and then when i it, when i was 18 my mum died in an accident which was obviously a huge tragedy and i didn't really think about it at the time but i then drank every day for the next 3 years but you know there were many other reasons for that like i was a 19 year old having a gap year and working in a bar what you know what do bar staff do they drink i had two months living in in ibiza 
um, being like working for clubs, you know, wasn't going to not drink there. And then going to university and what do people do at university? They, they, you know, it's like boarding school with a cheap bar. So that was, that was three, you know, three years of that, but that wasn't that out of the ordinary because a lot of students drink every day, but then thinking back, most people didn't actually drink. It seemed like people were drinking every day, but probably most people weren't getting a bottle of wine from the the whole bar and having it on their own in their room. So I did that and didn't really think much about it. And I guess the first kind of signals that I had that this wasn't sustainable were I had what I didn't call it this at the time. And I, I, I don't know enough about panic attacks to, to say that it was, but it, I think it must have been a panic attack. Like I freaked out one day when I was really hungover um, in some department store like Debenhams or something. We were looking at something very mundane like toasters or kettles and I just couldn't couldn't breathe properly and I was um, overwhelmed by where, where we were and had to just leave and we had to get a taxi home even though we were dirt poor students who couldn't afford taxis. Um, and that was a bit of a shock to me saying, hey, you know, something that's that's not fun anymore. That's not rebellious and cool anymore. So that was a bit of a, a, sh- a shock to me and made me start. I can't, it's too far ago for me to really remember what, what I did. But I think in my in my memory, I think I toned it down a little bit then. But then I finished university and I was into my 20s and um, I had always had this desire to be a musician, to be a, to be a rock star, like you know many Brits growing up in the in the nineties and you know any other decade, I guess. So I'd been practicing bass since I was fifteen, and then when I went to university, I left my bass at home and just drank <laughs> for university. But then in the week of graduation, when I had no idea what I wanted to do afterwards, I bumped into this friend who I'd heard that her band had got a record deal with one of my favorite labels and I was like oh congrats you know uh, how's it how's it going and she said it's going really well but our bass players just left and I was like great I'm a bass player and I had to get my bass that I'd lent to a friend like a couple of years before <laughs> had to get it back practice for a couple of days and end up getting in this band and then there I am I'm a semi-professional musician and what do musicians do they drink they have fun so I was doing that. I was putting on club nights and DJing. And then I had a record label with my friends at home. And, you know, that was very normal. It's encouraged to do. You're, you're trying to be a rock star. What else are you going to do? And then when that petered out, I realized I had to get a job. And because I'd studied English, I thought I'd be a journalist. So I became a music journalist. And what do music journalists do? <laughs> well, what do journalists do? They drink. So this was this took up the whole of my 20s. I moved from Birmingham, which is where I went to uni, to London, worked for Channel 4 as a, as a music journalist and was loving loving life living in, in London, going to free gigs and going to festivals and all that. And yeah, had relationships that were very much built around drinking and partying and, and having a good time. And that carried on after I moved to Australia. I was 31 when I moved and I became a, a lifestyle journalist. So I was thinking maybe that'd be a bit um, less boozy, but then I'd get invited to review bars and restaurants. <laughs> and there was one, that, so the two incidents that I remember from this period of being like a, a lifestyle journalist were 
being invited to cover a week-long vodka festival in, in New Zealand <laughs> where they, they basically gave us a, a liter of vodka for our rooms, even though we were drinking all day anyway. It's like made for, for alcoholics. <laughs> um, so that was one. And I was just like, wow, this is, this is extreme. And then the other one was a, a three-day trip to, to Las Vegas to review bars and restaurants where I went with one of my best friends and we kind of just, he was the PR person and I was the journalist and we just used it as an excuse to spend this company's money having the biggest piss up that we, we could um, manage in Vegas. And that, that was around the time when I was just like, okay, this is, I was getting really, really bad hangovers and I was, I was realizing that it was taking longer and longer to recover from them. My first real revelation, personal revelation that I needed to start making a change was what I call my my early midlife crisis, which was on my 35th birthday party where we, with some DJ friends, we hosted this illegal warehouse party, which was in this super seedy club that it, we'd heard rumors that it was also used as a sex club. And they said, don't bring any neon lights or for, and we're just like, oh, I don't want to get into that. There were arguments about who would get money from the, the house drug dealers. It was just super, super seedy. And I realized that that night that I didn't enjoy it at all. I didn't enjoy playing any of the music that I was playing. I was feeling paranoid from the drink and the, and the other stuff that I was taking and realized that something had to change. I didn't want to be at, I, I thought 35 was a nice round number. I didn't want to be 45, 55, 65 doing that same thing. So that the following day, I quit smoking and I quit DJing. They were the two things I thought, right, something has to go. But it wasn't it wasn't the alcohol. They, they were the things that I identified as problematic at that time because, you Did know, the we, alcohol kind of cross your your mind. Was it? A, I a mean, of, I, uh, shall I give up drinking? No, <laughs> I don't or, I don't think it really did. Like I obviously knew that it was problematic, but it we were talking in a separate conversation earlier about that point where you accept that life would be better without alcohol. I probably had an idea that it would maybe better, but I was nowhere near that acceptance part. So I was probably in in the denial phase at that point and was working on other ways to to fix my life and turn things around. So I got into exercise and being an all or nothing person. I went from nothing to running a marathon in a year. And that was really the first sign for me that I could change my conscious experience without ingesting something, without drinking or doing anything else and realizing that there were all these endorphins and serotonin and all this, what, what I now call the infinite pharmacy within that we can access without ingesting chemicals. So that really got me on more of this health health trip, which inspired me enough to look to, to start looking into psychology and I did an NLP neuro-linguistic programming course and that got me thinking about limiting beliefs and started opening me up to, to things like mindfulness and meditation and then I had this mentor at work um, who said hey why don't you look into meditation it's from what you're talking about sounds like that would be a good thing to do and being the all or nothing person that I am, I, I tried lots of different techniques and I tried breath techniques and I tried um, compassion techniques where I sent love to my enemies and all these crazy things and started to really see 
kind of a light at the end of the tunnel and practice various techniques until I had this key moment where I discovered Vedic meditation, which is the main meditation that I practice and teach. Although I got benefits from these other types of meditation, this was the one that really clicked for me and felt felt like it was doing what it was supposed to do. Like I was I was noticing the benefits outside of meditation with the mindful breath technique, but it wasn't until the Vedic one. So in Vedic meditation, we use a mantra, which is a word or sound that we repeat silently in our heads. And we sit comfortably rather than in lotus position. I was just like, cool, this is like lazy man's meditation. <laughs> I like this. And it, I got to a point where I wasn't doing meditation because I, I knew I should be eating my greens. I was doing it because I enjoyed it and I'd look forward to it. I kept a journal throughout this period for two years before I learned to meditate and ever since. And so I've got notes on on things that up to that point, I, I hadn't, like I knew that I wanted to drink less, but I wasn't really able to do it. I had very much a rubber arm. And if anyone said, hey, it's Wednesday, let's go to the pub. I'd be like, well, I don't really want to, but yeah. And I would stay <laughs> till later than anyone. The week after learning Vedic meditation, I, I remember putting in my in my journal that there was this in, invite to come out and I, I was able to just say, okay, hang on, I could go out and not drink, which was so, Who knew? Such, a, such a crazy thing. I was like, wow, this is revolutionary. Radical. So I, so I, try, I tried that and it was okay. But then you know, it was interesting hearing your story of it, you, yours being a long, a longer journey from thinking about it to actually doing it or, you know, trying it to actually succeeding. And, and for me, it was this, this quite subtle journey where by starting to meditate that, that was removing my triggers to drink and the stress and the social anxiety, which was leading me to drink. And over the period of the next four years I was drinking less but I was still having these big blowouts where you know it'd be all-nighters so I was avoiding going out I was going it's either go out and get hammered or not or not go out um and I'd been enjoying meditation so much that I decided that I wanted to teach it you know having a purpose rather than you know just doing a whatever corporate job where the main aim is to make money for a company it was like, well, hang on, I could make a living by helping people relax. Whereas I'd had this midlife crisis before where part of it was me losing the identity I'd had before, which was as this kind of party person and life of the party. And if I'd, if I'd thought about what my purpose was in my 20s, it would have been to help people um, reduce their worries and relax and let their hair down through music. So playing music, giving people a yeah. forum to, to, to forget their worries on the dance floor. And then realizing that with meditation, I could do something that was related, but using a different medium. So using the medium of meditation to help people overcome their worries through sitting down in silence. So it's kind of doing the same thing, but without the hangover. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. So that that yeah. was that was a kind of slow way for me to replace that void that I experienced when I decided that I couldn't really do music. 
like but I your used story to. is uh, your story is so interesting, Rory, in that it's um, it's kind of upside down to my, to my experience and most of the the people that we work with because we tend to say ditch the drink, just get the poison out of your life, and then do yoga, and then learn to meditate and whatever. So I love the way that you've kind of done that the other way around. You got healthy, and then suddenly the the alcohol wasn't congruent with your your lifestyle because it doesn't fit. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Yeah, and that's 100% how how it went. Like I was, I used to drink because I would feel stressed or bored or whatever it was at the end of the week. And I would drink and I would forget that feeling. I would numb that feeling and it would, it would be better than it was an hour before. After I started regularly meditating, I found that I was feeling good anyway. I would get to Friday 6pm and I would be feeling good. And those times that I did drink, I would then start to feel groggy and bad. Like I'd cleaned up my act so much that I was better able to to notice what the alcohol was doing to me, that it was yeah, num- numbing me and making, m- making me lose my clarity. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. It's this kind of back, backwards way of doing it, but that's what I've now taken to, to be, to, to use as a tool for other people. And that's why, you know, I say, look, when I, when I help people with meditation, I say, it's all good to have a drinking goal, you know, to not drink for a certain period of time. But I get people rather than to commit to 30 days of drinking, I say commit to meditating twice a day for 30 days and don't worry about the alcohol as much because that is going to give them um, a, a look at that experience that I had of when I was meditating and had that calmness, I had less of the need to drink. So it's the meditation which is reducing that, that need to drink which is how I experienced it. I just experienced it over a longer period of time. And it got to a point where the kind of turning point for me was four years after I'd learned to meditate, I'd already been teaching meditation for a year, but it was feeling weird. And um, I wasn't feeling authentic, even if I'd had like two or three drinks the night before to be teaching people to meditate, it just didn't feel right. And I went on this week-long meditation retreat in, in Mexico. It was a classic midlife crisis thing. I was single at the time. I'd just turned 40 and I ended up in this this retreat sharing a room with three other guys, all of whom had just turned 40, all single, all who <laughs> had come up with this idea of let's go to Mexico for a meditation retreat for New Year, which was hilarious in, in itself. But we obviously didn't drink for a week then. And with the super powered meditation that we were doing we were doing like 12 hours a day that that pushed me over the edge and gave me the clarity to say hang on I I could it's within my power now just to to stop so when I got back I still had to get through all that all those limiting beliefs that I had from before like I can't have fun without alcohol I can't do Australia day without alcohol I can't go to a wedding without alcohol all those long list of 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 things that I had limiting beliefs around and and I set myself these short goals of right. I'm going to do it for do it for January and see how that goes. And then, being all or nothing, I was able to turn my all or nothingness into nothing for drinking. Um, but I think the main thing for me is that I'd already done the work beforehand. Yes. 
um, which yes. which inspired me then to to use this as a tool to help other people and and really to make it about committing to the meditation even before you're starting change your relationship with alcohol but don't make it the be all and end all to you know you don't have to quit before you can do this you do this and it will help you quit. yeah yeah i think that's that's such an interesting approach it's a little bit like um you know when when we get sober or if we have to get sober because of our health or pressure from a family member or whatever you know we we do it for a while and and we're trying hard and and we get a few months of sobriety and then we start to feel so great we think oh this is this is nice you know so i'm going to stay that way because it's it's like an intrinsic motivator isn't it it's coming from within because you're feeling good so i love the way that you know you started the exercise and the meditation and then the the drinking almost fell away by itself didn't it it wasn't so difficult as as it is for many of us that just focus on must stop drinking and then i'll get healthy yeah yeah 100 percent. so it's 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 coming coming from the other way and and doing doing that work and helping people see the benefit of that doing that work up front and they will notice yeah. that you know so for me it was like a longer period but what i notice with my students who 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 do my my course is that they notice it the days that they do their two meditations compared to the days that they don't um are the days that they find it much easier to stick to their their goals and the way i describe it is so meditation teachers talk about something called adaptation energy so this is your the the internal resources and capacity you have to cope with changing change demands or expectations during the day whether that's dropping a plate in the kitchen or there being a traffic jam or you being late to your meeting or whatever it might be they they all take take up this adaptation energy and i describe this about as this um this stock of wise wise monkeys that we all wake up with and we have at least three wise monkey credits for example that we wake up with and they deplete we spend them through the day and when they when they've run out then that means that we're we're looking for another crutch so then that's when the wine monkey comes out and the wine monkey goes right hey that bottle of chardonnay in the fridge looks good <laughs> let's have that and, and by meditating and so i recommend people to meditate in the morning and in the evening it means and especially in the evening if they're only doing one it means that when you've depleted that adaptation energy when you've run out of those wise monkeys you can top up again so that you're not getting to that point where it's six o'clock and you've you've had enough and you've had a long day and you've you've got no resistance to to your normal your ingrained habits so by having meditation well one it gives you that adaptation energy which puts the wise version of you back in charge but two it's also a way to disconnect and change your conscious state and that's the other thing that i talk about is that there's nothing wrong with wanting to change your conscious state it's a perfectly um, natural human desire and you can look in the playground and see kids spinning around and making themselves feel dizzy or, or you know the the, um, those Sufi guys who spin around in, in um, I can't remember what they're called now, uh, the whirling dervishes, you know, in, in yeah. the Sufi religion, that's, that's a religious practice around changing your state of consciousness. So there's nothing wrong with that. It's just we've used this, this, used this tool to do it, which is not sustainable. Alcohol is not a sustainable way to do it because it has all these negative impacts on us and 
as we get older, we build up this tolerance to it. So it becomes less and less effective, which is why, you know, I often see most of the people who come and work with me, they're not in their 20s. (laughs) They're in their 30s or more often 40s, 50s, 60s, because we build up this tolerance and it doesn't work. It, It becomes more obvious that the the harms of it are outweighing the benefits as we get older. Yeah. And that's the time to make a change, isn't it? And yeah, I guess, you know, when you, you meditate, you're, you're just getting more in touch, aren't you, with your, your mind and your body. And it, it's not a good human practice to pour poison down our necks every day, is it? So uh, finally, you're, you're listening to your, your wise voice uh, explaining maybe you need to call it. So, yeah. And, and, you know, and I'd say this to people is don't, you know, even because when people start reading books about this and reading studies, they, they think oh, I should, I should know this, this makes sense. And then they feel guilty if they have a setback or they find themselves drinking, but it's like, this is a long, this is a long process. Think how long you drank for. And for exactly. most of us, it's decades, right? Even, yeah, even yeah. so I gave up at 40, I still drank for 25 years. That's a long yeah. time. So I like to tell people that, look, it's, it's like you're, you're in charge of a huge old sailing ship and you've changed, you've changed the rudder. You've moved it to the side. You're changing the direction that this ship is going in. But at the beginning, you're not going to see much difference. Like the water around you is going to look the same. The horizon is going to look the same, but you will end up in a different place by making these changes. Different so, place, yeah. Uh, and it will be a, a better place, but you won't be able to see it yet. Um, so, so, so trusting that being okay with the fact that it may take longer than you want, because if you've been drinking for two decades, three decades, four decades, it's not going to turn around in, in 30 days. So I, I now talk about how goals are good, but systems are better. Like it's not, you know, it's not going to benefit you in the long run if you give up alcohol for 30 days. But if you build in systems into your day, like meditation, like eating well, like exercise, then, and like being mindful about your drinking and not doing it automatically, then over time you will that's much better for you and and building into that system of forgiving yourself for setbacks and accepting that it's a longer process and learning what was wrong with your system when something goes wrong whether it's you didn't meditate or you shouldn't hang out with those people at 2 a.m on on a friday night knowing that i'd much rather people change their systems and it takes a bit longer and they end up drinking half as much forever or gradually down to nothing than if they manage to white knuckle it for 30 days or 60 days or even six months that's no value if they then go back no that's that's a wonderful analogy uh rory i think i'll steal that one the the sailing (laughs) ship i love it i love it and yeah, as you said, I mean, we've got a lady I'm always talking about, or I know she'll forgive me, but uh, she joined us for one of our Sober Spring challenges. And, you know, she was drinking a lot and she found it. Our Sober Spring challenge, by the way, it's uh, 66 days without alcohol on the basis that you should be able to build a new neural pathway in that time. So it might be a little easier going forward. So she uh, she signed up for this and c- couldn't you know pull together more than two or three uh, alcohol free days, 
but she was so persistent. And we have these annual trackers, you know, and, and you can see the whole year. It's very old school, you know. We, I know we've got trackers on the phone, but people seem to like these paper ones because they yeah. color them in, you know, and they pin them on the fridge and things. So uh, she was using her tracker and her sober stretches, as we call them, were getting longer and longer, you know, and each time she stumbled and fell, she reflected and she learned something from it and she journaled. So she still, you know, would talk about, she always went back to day one each time she, she stumbled. And uh, by the end of a year, by the time it got to the second, the next sober spring that she did, she just sailed through it. And she's now like seven months sober. And she, she used to talk about uh, day one. So she wrote a, a guest blog for us and it's called My 84 Day Ones. That's <laughs> how many times she stumbled. Really? But she kept going and she kept going and she kept putting the systems in, you know, and I, I love yeah. that approach, learning from why it went wrong. And, okay, it um, doesn't make me a bad person, but I have to learn from that. Yeah, not not but, not judging yourself and not not seeing it as a failure, but more, more a learning opportunity. So I've heard you talk about sober first. I'm a great fan of so getting through those sober first. You did a sober first wedding, sober first dating, sober first gig for you. That must have been quite something. <laughs> yeah. So all of those, and it's <clears throat> it's surprising how quickly all of these things come up in in if I think about my first year of being or my first month of being sober had. Yeah, I had that retreat that I mentioned and then I got back and had this leaving do where I, I decided that I was going to drink or I wasn't going to drink. And I thought, oh, I'm going to not drink. And it was really good. And I didn't drink. And then that evening I had my first sober date. So this was the first day I got back from Mexico. And I had a date with my girlfriend, who's still my girlfriend, four, four years later. Must have gone well. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, in that month I had, yeah, Australia Day, which is kind of like the 4th of July. And then I had a, a wedding, yeah, wedding in New Zealand that I mentioned, a skiing trip to Japan where there was like a, a Tokyo bar crawl till three in the morning. It would have been within six weeks I'd done all of these things and gone, well, hang on, if I've done, you know, there's nothing that's going to be harder than those things. Having enough faith in yourself that, to, to, to at least try those things. And once you've done them, then it's like, okay, well, if I can do a wedding, like when I, so I do one-on-one -on -one sober coaching with people as well. And they often find that a wedding is a key, a key, key yeah. event that they're they working on up for so long, don't they? <laughs> well, they do. And that's, you know, you can make it, you can make it easier for yourself. So this one client that I had, she decided to be designated driver which meant that she had to be there till the the very end and i was like don't don't do that look you want to ghost as early as you can yeah. um, have an escape plan <laughs> yeah which is just leave without telling anyone yeah so once you know have faith that you can do these things and that's the other thing that you notice once you start doing these firsts is that because i used to have that limiting belief that everyone drinks and as soon as you're not drinking, you look around and there are plenty of people who don't <laughs> drink or they more often they have a drink, but they don't really have it or they have half a glass. And it's yeah. more it's easier just to have a glass and not really drink it than not because you don't have to go into that conversation. But you start seeing that there are so many people who aren't getting smashed <laughs> or yeah, you know, yeah. they just have a couple of a couple of drinks or they won't really touch their drinks. And, and that 
that makes you think that, oh, once all you have to do is do it once to then go, oh, I can go to a wedding sober and then I can play music sober. And not only that is I can be much better because I'm not I'm not numbing myself, numbing my creative parts of my brain and my motor neuro, my kind of motor skills. And once you've got a few of those experiences under your belt, it's like, well, and having, you know, like a good time that you can remember and being able to wake up the next day and then still be productive. Like I used to have these four or five day voids of creativity where I couldn't, you know, I, I I was still functioning, but I couldn't do anything outside of the bare minimum from Sunday to Wednesday. And then finding that I had all this extra time and energy to achieve the things I wanted to do, which was around building my meditation business. And I I wrote a novel in in the year after I learned to meditate. It's this thing where people often think that they don't have the the time to achieve their goals, but it's much more for me that they don't have the energy to do it because we all have, unless you're working 18 hours a day, which admittedly some people do, but most people don't, there will be a period of a few hours probably a day that you have to yourself, which you probably spend watching TV or scrolling through your phone or doing something because you've run out of that adaptation energy and you give yourself permission to to not do anything. Whereas without that removing that poison of alcohol from my system plus with the meditation which was giving me that second wind of energy i was just noticing that yeah i could have momentum again and move forward and not not be resetting every week which was just so boring (laughs) you're listening to a podcast from tribe sober if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab that's www.tribesober.com. Yeah. And the worst thing about resetting, you know, and, and falling on and off the wagon is that you're just doing the hardest bit over and over again because those first few weeks are dire, you know, and uh, people, I, I used to, you know, do them all the time when I was trying to moderate. You just think, oh, well, got to, got to try again. And it, it seems to get more difficult and the sober first things, I think it's so interesting because I meet so many people that say, okay, you know, I want to do a challenge with you, but I won't be able to start until this day or that day because I've got a wedding, I've got yeah. something coming on, you know. So, I mean, to some extent, I say maybe, you know, make it easy for yourself if you can try and pick a quiet period in your diary. But we've all got something, haven't we? That, so it's not an excuse for procrastinating forever. Just, no. just go for it. Yeah, I mean, you're never going to have a, a month where there's nothing. There's never going to be a perfect no. month. It's not going to no. happen. What if, what if someone was listening to this and they were thinking, oh, well, you know, maybe I could do this, but um, what are the benefits? You know, why, why should I put all these effort in? What have the benefits for you been, Ori? Of, of not drinking, they have hmm. been setting myself up, basically giving myself this opportunity to explore a different a different life for myself with this midlife crisis. Like if I'd carried on that, that kind of music partying part, well, one, I probably wouldn't have lived very long and two, it would have been one-sided. So what I've found is that through that and the meditation, which are very entwined for me, the the main thing is that I guess the, the big, you know, the, the day-to-day stuff like sleeping better, blah, 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 more energy, great 
being healthier. But the big kind of key thing is that, you know, climbing Maslow's hierarchy of needs pyramid type stuff, like that part where you start to self-actualize and find your purpose and start realizing that it's not all about you and taking what you've learned and helping other people. That's, that's what it's allowed me to do. And they're very much entwined the meditation and the drinking thing, because I've found that my purpose is with those two things together, because that's a niche thing that, you know, I'm an expert drinker and now I'm an expert meditation teacher. And that's quite a rare thing. And I, and I can talk you know, authentically about both those things and using that as as a purpose where I enjoy doing it and I get to to help other people. So, you know, I've heard you talk about how purpose is so important for keeping you sober, but also having something to to look forward to, you know, you know, that's why people get one of the classic midlife crisis things is I can't be working for this stupid corporation anymore doing a pointless job. And regardless of what you do to pay the bills, having something outside of that so that you can have something that is contributing to the world and brings you satisfaction from doing it, like running my courses and seeing the changes that people go through with their drinking, but also with their sleep and with their not beating themselves up and feeling guilty and and letting themselves off the hook of all this self-criticism. Being able to do that as as a day-to-day thing is just so rewarding that I I would not have been able to do that while I was still drinking because I would not have been able to get it together enough, one, to realize it, but two, to execute it. Yeah, no, it's such a, a life-changing experience, isn't it? And, you know, well done you for having the the insight at the age of, of 35, wasn't it, really? You, you look forward 15 years because I, I say that to people, you know, think forward 10 years, 15 years, if you carry on drinking like you are now, where will you be? Whereas Mm. if you stop drinking, you've no idea where you'll be, but it'll be somewhere more healthy and happy probably than than the other route. So I think it's important for people to to look forward. And yeah, I mean, purpose, I I didn't think about purpose much when I was a drinker. I I just thought we were here to party, you know, but (laughs) now I think about purpose and meaning. (laughs) Well, there's this quote from that I used the other day, which is if you've seen the, the movie Spinal Tap, which is like the rock mockumentary from the 90s and there's this question that the director says is you know what's your philosophy or creed that you live by and the guy says have a good time all the time (laughs) and that's kind of you know that that was it for for, you know we used to joke and use that quote but that's how we lived you know yeah yeah uh, let's talk about meditation for a moment. I mean, to be to be perfectly honest with my own example, I've um, I'm heavily into yoga. You know, I've got a yoga teacher, a daily practice, etc. And I've doubled in my meditation. I've I've got these apps on my phone. You know, Headspace, isn't it? The, the British yeah. guy, and then there's one called Calm. So I've kind of doubled in it, but I can't can't really get into it because. Um, I've got one of these minds that just kind of rattles around. And I know many people are like that. So what yeah. would you say to people like me to persuade us to give it another go? Yeah, great question. So the way that I talk about it is that there are there are different types of meditation that are aimed at different types of people. And we happen to be in this period where mindfulness techniques like listed calm and headspace, they're huge. They're dominated, dominating the world and they're also dominating scientific research they're the main things but they are all mindfulness is from the buddhist tradition which is 
um, mostly a, a monastic tradition. So it's meditation devised for monks. The, the Headspace guy was a monk for a decade before he came back to the West and set up that app. And in that that system of meditation, there is this idea of being able to clear your mind and to watch your thoughts go by like clouds, etc., which is an advanced type of meditation that you can do if you're a monk for 10 years, dedicating all your time to do it. Gardening, you know, mindful gardening, mindful um, doing the washing, mindful picking the apples off the trees, you know, what, what a monk could do wandering around the garden. Whereas there are also techniques, so we call that the monastic tradition, then there are also techniques from what we call the the householder tradition. So this is meditation techniques aimed at people who have jobs, families, worldly ambitions. So these techniques are they're, they're characterized more by effortlessness. So Vedic meditation, which is what I teach, is one of them. Transcendental meditation is another one. And they are, rather than being about concentration and focus and trying to clear your mind, um, they're about... N- moving with the tendency of the mind and the tendency of the mind is is to think and it's to think of is to try and think of something that's more um that will bring more happiness than whatever you're thinking now so when the mind thinks it's looking for happiness it's looking for contentedness whether that's imagining a future happy event or remembering something happy or trying to solve a problem or thinking about what you're going to have for dinner it the mind is looking for contentedness and in these householder techniques what we do is we replace those thoughts with with a mantra, which is a word or sound that doesn't have a intended meaning, which occupies the mind and charms it into this state of relaxation where when it reaches its kind of apex, the mind falls silent because what it finds is it finds contentedness within. We can't prove this, but we infer by the fact that, and the yogis discovered this centuries ago, that if the mind is looking for contentedness and it falls silent, we can infer that it has found what it was looking for. We can also infer that by, I feel more contented after I meditate. So I may well have gone somewhere where I feel contented. And the reason that it people often find these styles of meditation easier than the mindfulness styles is that you're not setting yourself up for failure. You say, I'm going to think my mantra and I will think it as many times as as my mind is able to before it gets lost on another thought. However, at that point, that's not me failing in meditation. That's a natural process. The way we talk about it is the mantra is designed to be forgotten So you think it, you forget it, and you end up thinking about some random thought from yesterday or last week or your childhood. And when this happens, what is happening is that your body has relaxed enough to release a stress. So we, from going through day-to-day life, we, we store stress in our system, overloads of experience. So whether that's the road rage incident you had yesterday or the argument you had with your partner, you will store a physical memory of that. So when we relax physically in meditation, we relax more deeply than when we sleep. So we're able to offload these stresses. They offload and we find ourselves thinking. So rather than thoughts being the signal of you failing at meditation, they're actually a signal that something good has happened. You've released a stress. So it's it's when I teach meditation, it's mostly, it's a, it's a simple technique that takes, you know, literally five minutes to teach, but then it's about convincing people that the experience they are having 
is a good worthwhile meditation experience so that they dedicate their time to doing it. And it's really changing that idea of what success looks like. And success doesn't look like clearing your mind, like you will not be able to do it. No, you know, maybe if you've been a monk for 20 years, you can do it. But you and me, I've been meditating twice a day for eight years. I can't do it. You know, I'm not aiming to do it. Wow. So it's I it's, feel better now. <laughs> it's changing the idea of what success is. And it's it's about giving people a system where they're not setting themselves up for failure. Like we were saying before with this the the setbacks that we get in drinking and your 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 person who, you know, had the eighty fourth day one, you know, that's what meditation is teaching you because you forget to think your mantra and that's what you think of as failure, but you remind yourself each time that, hey, no, that's not failure. So the other example I give is like surfing so i live by the beach here in, in bondi and i'm a terrible surfer but i can see people out there doing it and pro- good surfers it's not like when the wave ends and they come off the board that's not failure that's just the end of that wave so that's how we talk about it with meditation when you forget to think the mantra that's not you failing that's just the end of that particular wave which takes you into this stress release process so it's really embedding this resilience in you by practicing it time after time and you you will have this experience dozens of times in each meditation where you're exercising this muscle of not minding when things don't go to plan so we have an intention to think our mantra but then we're not rigidly attached to it and we accept it when when we don't remember to knowing that there's this greater stress release thing but it's training us to be basically more chilled out people by exercising this muscle of of not caring which we then take wow. from the microcosm of meditation into the macrocosm of day-to-day life, which makes things easier. So life becomes more effortless as our, as we're practicing this effortless technique. And that all plays into you needing fewer of the crutches that you did before, which for me was alcohol, but for other people might be compulsive internet usage or shopping or gambling or whatever it might be, those things that we can go to, to to distract ourselves and to get dopamine hits we're less needy of them because we're finding what we want inside we're finding a serotonin hit within rather than those external dopamine hits which means that then then you don't have to do all that thinking through and willpower and all those things it just naturally happens that you um things you used to do just fall away because they're n- no longer compatible with your changed state yeah. of consciousness yeah, which was your kind of non-drinking journey in a way. Yeah, mm. that's such an interesting take on uh, on meditation, Rory. I think I think I'll give it another go. I'll do it your way this time. <laughs> yeah. So um, th- uh, there's two lots of people that'll be listening to this, and I'd like you to explain how how they can benefit from from what you offer. So there'll be people in my community, for example, there'll be plenty of sober people probably listening to this. So it would be part of their, you know, post drinking health journey. Or yeah. there'll be people that <clears throat> would like to give up drinking and they would like to see how meditation can help them to do that. You know, I, I've been talking about it as a tool to help you remove those crutches that you've had before including drinking but that's only one benefit of meditation once one you know people come for the meditation and then they they stay for the creativity and the finding purpose and self-actualization and all those other things what it's really doing is it's reducing your stress and connecting you more with your the core of your being which then 
so you're creating a relationship with yourself and then all your other relationships change whether that is actual relationships or whether it's your relationship with money or with sex or with drugs or whatever it might be we we often in the 20th century and now since meditation came to the west we talk about it as being a tool for stress release like we it got medicalized and studied but you know the yogis 500 5000 years ago weren't talking about stress release it was a tool for self development is a tool to if if you're religious is a tool to get closer to god and if not it's a tool to to develop yourself fully spiritually emotionally all those things so it will help your sober journey because it does that what i talk about increasing your wise monkeys and silencing the wine monkey but then it will help you <clears throat> develop those other parts of yourself that you can't do if you're a bit tired so i know i mentioned maslow's hierarchy of needs before you know that famous pyramid and many of us you know in our 40s 50s 60s may be quite high up that pyramid in some areas but we can get kept down held back by some of those earlier slices so the bottom slice on that pyramid is physiological needs so that's food shelter etc but it's also rest like if you haven't slept enough or if you are generally quite tired you are not going to be doing be able to do those higher echelons of looking for esteem and self actualizing you're not going to have the resources to do that like i mentioned with if i have 2 hours sleep i'm much more likely to have an unhealthy i'll have a chocolate croissant for breakfast instead of a nice porridge and i'll have two coffees instead of one and i won't exercise it's that a more obvious example but through meditation you're increasing your restfulness so that you can achieve more however that might manifest for you and that will be very individual to 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 whatever place you're in and it will help you uncover what that purpose is and then give you the energy to to go after it Yeah that's that's very interesting thinking of sleep as one of the the bases of that uh, Maslow's hierarchy because I, I always used to think of that as having you know like a roof over your head and enough to eat but of course having the rest is just as essential as as those other things yeah So I know you've got your meditation to quit alcohol course um mm. so people can find that on your website can't they Well if you search for we meditate to quit alcohol you find it there so that's my main guided meditation offering and then my new offering is called six steps for not quite alcoholics which is based around that core meditation technique but with um seven weekly 90 minute group seminars so it's a group coaching session plus me talking through why meditation <laughs> works and these other steps which are around accepting that your life would be better with less alcohol and about how to create habits so i've been talking about how goals are goals are good but habits are better systems are better so about how you set up those habits and you know about climbing that pyramid and the the final step being sharing that story and inspiring others so my my number one offering at the moment is this six steps one because it's been so powerful i've only one run one of them so far in november and i've got another one starting on the 2nd of january but it's been i've been blown away by how effective it's been for people and the the feedback they've been given you know from the meditation but also from having this community aspect of it and i just love checking that the app every morning and seeing the conversations that they're having where it's like yeah. 
well, I didn't have to say that. I would have said that, but they've all learned, yeah, yeah. They've all learned what yeah. to say. And overnight, Yeah, we see the same. You know, there's people in the US, there's people in the UK, and by the time I've woken yeah. up, everyone's already answered that said what they should have said. So it's been <laughs> it's been so so great for that. Yeah, yeah, I have that too. It's great. Okay, and your your podcast, I mean, you've got one called Almost Alcoholics, and have you got a meditation one still? I, I don't think you do it anymore, but people can find that, can't they? Yeah, so we've we've the the alcohol one's called Not Quite Alcoholics. Um right. and yeah, that's that as you'll be able to hear Janet on that <laughs> next week as Oh, as, next week, that soon. Yeah, I've I've have a quick turnaround. Um and then yeah, f- if if you're interested in learning more about Vedic meditation, I have a podcast that's paused at the moment, but it's called The Vedic Conversation. So Vedic is V E D I C. The Vedic Conversation, it's me and two other Vedic meditation teachers really going into depth about Vedic meditation, which is, you know, fascinating stuff. But yeah, those are the places that people can find me. Thank you so much, Rory. So many gems in there. Let me pull out a few of my favorite bits. When he left uni, Rory joined a band and then became a music journalist. So going to free gigs and festivals were all part of the job. So during his 20s, it was all about drinking, partying and having a good time. He moved to Australia to become a lifestyle journalist. He was expecting this lifestyle to be a little less boozy, but he was wrong. His assignments included reviewing a week-long vodka festival in New Zealand and then a three-day trip to Las Vegas to review bars and restaurants. He started to notice that his hangovers were getting more and more severe and that it was taking him longer to recover. And on his 35th birthday, he had what he called an early midlife crisis. He was DJing at his birthday party and he realized that he just was not enjoying himself. The combination of drugs and alcohol was making him feel paranoid and he wasn't even enjoying the music that he was playing. He decided he just didn't want to be living this life at 45. So he quit smoking and DJing the very next day, but he carried on drinking. Although he did have an inkling that life might be better without it, he was nowhere near accepting that he must stop. However, he did start exercising. And being an all-or-nothing kind of guy, like most of us drinkers, he was soon running marathons. And his running made him realize that he could access serotonin and endorphins, which could change his consciousness without using chemicals. As he says, he was able to access the infinite pharmacy within. Isn't that wonderful to discover that we have an infinite pharmacy within and we don't actually need drugs after all? Who knew? As Rory got fitter, he started to explore different types of meditation and began to feel there could be a light at the end of the tunnel. He discovered Vedic meditation, which is what he now teaches. Meditation was reducing his triggers and his stress, so he was drinking less, but he was still going on binges. But once he got healthier, he realized alcohol no longer fitted his lifestyle. His body was clean and he didn't like the effect that booze was having on it. So Rory's approach is, rather than say, don't drink for 30 days, he says, meditate twice a day for 30 days and don't think about the alcohol. So in other words, focus on your meditation practice and you may gradually lose the desire to drink. 
Rory's turning point came four years after starting his meditation practice. He was teaching by then and just didn't feel authentic drinking and teaching meditation, so he quit. I love his wise monkey analogy. He says, when we wake up, we have a credit of three wise monkeys. They get used up during the day and we need a crutch to keep us going. And that's when the wine monkey comes out. So he advises topping up your wise monkeys with a meditation practice in the evening that will put you back in charge and keep those wine monkeys away. He also believes that we must focus on building various systems to sustain our sobriety. And meditation is part of that system, as is exercise, healthy eating, community support. The systems approach really helps because when we have a slip up, the reaction should be, let's look at the system. Maybe we need to change something rather than, oh my God, I'm such a failure. Another great analogy from Rory was the tanker analogy. If you change the direction of a huge ship, then it's going to take a while before it moves and heads off in the right direction. Just as if you've been drinking for decades and you stop, it's going to take a while to settle into your sobriety and get on the path to alcohol-free living. Here at Tribe Sober, we hear people say, but I'm three months sober and I don't feel any benefits yet. Well, that's the joy of the community. People who have been sober for longer will pile in and say, hold on, it really does get better. We put our members on a seven-step program which helps them to explore what systems would work well for them. Coaching, yoga, hypnotherapy, various other types of therapy are all on offer so that people can sample them and see what works for them. Now that he is sober, Rory has much more time and energy to do the things he wants to. He reflected back on how it was taking him a few days to recover from his drinking sessions. Yes, he was functional, but he was only doing the bare minimum and experiencing a void in his creativity. And as he says, we often hear people saying they don't have time to pursue their goals, but it's often more about not having the energy. We have to remember that alcohol saps our energy and our motivation. And even if alcohol doesn't destroy us, it prevents us from reaching our potential. You heard Rory talk about his six-step course, which will help you to stop drinking via meditation. Read more about it on his website, which is We Meditate Co. His podcast is called Not Quite Alcoholics. And my interview with Rory is on episode seven of Not Quite Alcoholics. I'll put all the links in the show notes. I want to finish off by reading a message from one of our chat groups. So we had a lady that fell off the wagon last weekend. Uh, She got very drunk at the weekend and she was filled with remorse and shame and posted a, a very sad message on the group on Monday morning when she was probably feeling quite dreadful. And there were so many lovely responses that piled in. So here's one. Okay, you got drunk. Don't carry guilt and shame. If you did it more than once, then that's okay too. This is an unconditional space of growing and learning and failing and picking ourselves back up again. You are so not alone. You have a tribe. Whether we are acing it or falling off the bus, we always encourage each other and allow them to share their mishaps. So big hugs, get back on the bus. So much love and respect. We fall and we rise. 
And there's another lovely one. So you get two this week. Again, to this lady that fell off the bus. I drank for 40 years and just want to remind you that some of your feelings will be caused by the drink itself. Depression, anxiety, sadness, hopelessness. If you can get even a few days sober, things will look quite different or at least brighter. I do hope you'll stay with us. There's plenty of help and support here. None of us nailed this from the beginning and we're all still learning as we go. Please stay and keep reaching out. So big thank you to Trish and Shalene who wrote these lovely comforting messages to the lady that fell off the bus and was threatening to leave. I hope she's listening to this and that she decides to stay. So if you'd like to join our tribe, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. If you'd like a copy of our free PDF, which is called Sobriety Battle Plan, and it's full of trackers and great advice, just email janet at tribesober.com. So that's it from me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us and share the podcast. We'd be so grateful if you'll leave us a review and I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards. And that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.